Hello there. Just before we get the October extra issue underway, here's this month's puzzle for you. Now it's an old one, so you may have heard it before. You are in a room. In front of you are three switches labelled one, two, and three. And I can tell you that these switches link to three bulbs in a back room. Now you're only allowed to go into this back room once, and you can't see any of the light bulbs from where you are. So, how do you work out which switch belongs to which bulb? So there's a back room with three light bulbs. You have three switches in front of you, and you've got to work out which of the switches links to which bulb. You can only go in once. See you afterwards for the answer. The Jodcast. Well, come on, join the Facebook group with David Alt, Stuart Low, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. October extra issue. Hello and welcome to the October extra edition of the Jodcast. Yes, you may notice that that's not the usual soothing tones of Dave.、Um, unfortunately, he's been a bit too busy、um, for this issue, so he'll be back with us on the November issue of the Jodcast. So, coming up, we have a review of the Modern Radio Universe conference that was held here in Manchester, celebrating 50 years of space. We have、uh, some feedback and a discussion about the Space 50 projection event, which was held at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Our interview is with Donna Kubik from Fermilab in the States about dark energy, and we have Ask an Astronomer with myself and Edward Boyce. But first, before all of that, we should really do some listener feedback. Yes, let's feedback. So, Nick, you have postcards. Yes, thank you very much for all those folk who have sent in postcards. Thanks to Jason Hill for his, also from Unnamed from Essex, and. We have an amateur radio listener to us、uh, to the Jodcast. Great stuff. And his call sign is DL0EF, and I'm afraid my phonetic alphabet isn't good enough to do that.、Um, <laughs> hey, why don't we go Delta Lima Zero Echo Foxtrot? Hello to you. Thank you very much for sending us your postcard and your and、uh, and all your feedback. Do please keep sending us postcards. We like getting the postcards as well as the emails that we've received. Some emails.、Uh, many thanks to John Reffel for his email, saying that he's been listening to us、uh, while painting his bedroom. We hope it didn't distract you from painting the bedroom. No, that's、I、hope、true. you got it finished. Hope you did get it finished. Yes, and one from Jeff. Uh, enjoying listening to us on long train journeys, so we're pleased to hear that we're useful for whiling away the time. And Stuart, you've got some、uh, iTunes reviews. I do. We had quite a few in the last couple of weeks, and so thank you very much to all the people. We had repeat reviews from Ellipsis, Country Bumpkin, and the Naked Astronomer, who left us a review on the Australia iTunes store. And we had new reviews from Bexman, Debbie, Enigmagic, great name, T.W. Welshmark, Danny Liverpool too, and astronomy obsessed girl in yellow skinny jeans, who got very excited about us and has been listening to Jodcast back to back, I think, and says that we're far better than Zac Efron of High School Musical. High praise indeed. So thank you very much to all those folk who have been reviewing us on iTunes, and please, wherever you listen to us, whatever iTunes、uh, version you use, be it the UK, US, Australia, wherever, please do send some feedback on the Jodcast via iTunes or by. Our website at www.jodcast.net, or send us a postcard, or release a pigeon, or whatever. We'd love to hear your feedback, please. And talking of reviews and feedback, you may remember several months ago we had a listener survey. Well, we're having listener survey number two. We would like to see how things have changed with our listeners and what you think of us. 
So we'll be putting that on our website. There'll be an obvious link on the front page of the website. So if you could fill that in, that would be great. The survey is extremely important to us. So if you could please find five minutes of your time to go to www.jodcast.net and click on the survey link, fill out the survey with all your responses, it would be greatly appreciated. We need as many as possible. We do. You don't have to give us your email address, but if you do, you'll be entered into a draw to win our amazing prize. Yes, a prize. It's right here in front of us. It's a pair of binoculars. It is, 10 by 50 binoculars. They're quite nice. I've got a pair myself. Absolutely. So you can imagine yourself listening to Ian's Night Sky and cruising the heavens with these fantastic binoculars. So to one lucky survey respondent, you will receive from us our 10 by 50 binoculars. So fill in our survey. Now, in our Irregular Astronomical Society segment, we have an announcement from the Macclesfield Astronomical Society. Here's Andrew Greenwood to tell us more. If you're getting started in astronomy, or would like to further your interest, why not join the Macclesfield Astronomical Society and the British Astronomical Association for a full-day event featuring a programme of talks and practical sessions to help you and the members of your community to learn more about what we can see in our own solar system and in the universe beyond. The event will be held on Saturday, October 27th, 2007, at Macclesfield Town Hall in Cheshire. The talks will cover diverse subjects such as choosing the right telescope, through to observing the Moon, the Sun and the amazing planets Jupiter and Saturn. We will also have experts on hand to answer all your questions and a range of retailers present so you can see telescopes and equipment at first hand. So, go to our website at www.macastro.com, that's M-A-C-C-Astro.com, and follow the links for further information and booking details. If you'd like to reserve your place, please email meetings at britastro.org. We really hope to see you there, because there's a universe out there for you to discover, and our aim is to help you find it. Thanks, Andrew. And just to recap there, that event will be held on Saturday the 27th of October. Now, back at the start of October, the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics hosted the Modern Radio Universe Conference. And one of the big events at the conference was a special day on Thursday the 4th of October. Which we all know is uh, the 50th anniversary of the launch of Sputnik. Hopefully all Jodcast listeners should know that by now. And we started off with uh, no less than the Astronomer Royal. So we're very lucky to be joined right now by Professor Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Please let us know why are you here today at Jodrell Bank. Well, I wouldn't have missed this for anything because it's a wonderful celebration to celebrate uh, 50 years of the Jodrell Bank Telescope. And what is amazing is that the telescope is still doing wonderful science of a kind that could not have been envisaged when it was developed and also that Bernard Lovell is still here to appreciate it. In fact, when it was built, it was just in time to uh, detect the um, uh, first Sputnik that had been launched at the same time. And now, 50 years later, it is finding evidence for Einstein's theory with a precision a 1,000 times or even 10,000 times better than any test we had when the telescope was built using observation of a kind that couldn't have been conceived by Bernard Lovell back 50 years ago. So it's wonderful that this instrument, 50 years after it was built, is still doing frontier science and at the same time has become an iconic building, almost as iconic as Stonehenge in a sense, (laughs) in the public mind. So it is wonderful that this is a monument to Bernard Lovell who's still here to appreciate it and inspire us and that it is still doing great science. 
your career must have um, corresponded quite closely with Sir Bernard. So what are your impressions of him as the man and as the scientist? Well, I'm about 30 years younger than he is. Um, so uh, uh, I remember hearing him uh, give a lecture when he came to my school. He was already a distinguished professor at that time. So I've always venerated him as an earlier generation. But it's been wonderful to see how over the last 50 years his vision has remained so productive. It's wonderful being able to talk to you as the Astronomer Royal, and I know that many of our listeners will want to know, what does the Astronomer Royal actually do? Um, well, to quote Gilbert Sullivan, he does nothing in particular and does it very well. Um, <laughs> but I think the uh, answer to your question is that the title Astronomer Royal dates back to when the Royal Observatory was founded in 1675, and it was originally the title given to the uh, director of that observatory, who was... I suppose, the first government-funded scientist, because astronomy was the first science to have professionals and need elaborate equipment, apart perhaps from medicine. It's the oldest science except for medicine and probably the first science to do more good than harm. <laughs> um, but uh, 50 years ago, when uh, uh, the Greenwich Observatory became an effective museum and uh, observations moved overseas, uh, the title of Astronomer Royal was separated from Greenwich and just given to a senior astronomer and uh, it's been held by uh, the Professor Graham Smith, who was at Jodrell Bank, and other radio astronomers, and I'm the current holder of that title. So you're currently a professor at Cambridge University. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about the current research that you're doing at the moment. Well, uh, I'm at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, and my interest is in really two things. One is trying to understand how the very first galaxies formed a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, and use observations to probe very far away and therefore far back in time to study them. I'm also interested in the most extreme explosions that we know about in the universe. These are objects called gamma-ray bursts, when more energy than the sun puts out over its 10 billion year lifetime comes out in a few seconds in a jet of gamma rays. And these gamma rays are so powerful that we can detect gamma-ray bursts even at uh, the edge of the universe, as it were. And they are also objects that sing signal the formation of a black hole. So we are studying these extreme objects which uh, tell us about the kind of physics which we certainly can't do in the lab. And that reminds us that, of course, there are several motives for doing astronomy. One is simply to explore what's out there. The other is to understand the laws of nature under extreme conditions that we couldn't even conceive of simulating here on Earth and perhaps discover new laws of nature. So that's another reason for doing these studies of extreme events. And, of course, here at Jodrell Bank, there's been a great deal of work done on neutron stars and pulsars, which are, again, remarkable phenomena. It's amazing to think of a whole star squeezed to dimensions of a few miles and spinning at hundreds of revs per second. But that's the kind of thing being studied here with this marvellous telescope. It's remarkable. You said, mentioned earlier that the Astronomer Royal was a position one of the first government posi uh, positions uh, allocated back, yes. in, back when it was instituted, trying to solve the longitude problem. Now I think we've, we've, we've solved that problem quite well. Yes, yes. What do you see the role of astronomy today in, is in today's society? The role of astronomy? Um, well, astronomy is still a frontier science. Uh, if you think of what the frontiers of science are, they're the very big, the very small, and the very complicated. And astronomy is concerned with the very big. And indeed, if you want to understand the Big Bang, we've got to understand the synthesis between the very big and the very small, because the entire universe was once squeezed to the size of an atom, perhaps, and we need to understand uh, unified theory of the large and small to make progress. So astronomy is a fundamental science, but also it's really an environmental science, because the uh, sky is part of our environment. 
um, and indeed uh, just in a simple-minded way the ordinary night sky that we can all look up at is part of our environment and indeed a special part because it's the one feature of our environment has been shared by all people at all times in all parts of the world so it's very special and uh, that's why it's fascinating so astronomy has that function but also of course it's advanced because we can use new technologies to study the cosmos in new ways we can use space probes to go to the planets we can use telescopes in space to observe uh, x-rays gamma rays and infrared radiation that wouldn't get down through the atmosphere to the ground so it's a subject that's vastly expanded and as it has expanded the universe has become far more interesting just to take one example uh, we can now um, look up at the sky and think of the stars not as just points of light but each star or at least most stars are now known to be uh, uh, surrounded by retinues of planets just as our sun is surrounded by the planet of which earth is one and so we can now think of the night sky as really being a place where we look at thousands of other planetary systems, maybe some as complicated as ours and maybe some with life on them. What do you see as the biggest questions in astronomy at the moment? I would say to find out about whether there are Earth-like planets elsewhere, uh, to see if there's life on any of them, to understand more about how galaxies and stars were formed in the first place, and to understand about uh, how the amazing chain of events that started with the Big Bang 13 or 40 billion years ago led to the formation of uh, atoms, stars, planets, biospheres and eventually brains of creatures able to wonder about it all. These are exciting times in astronomy and science in general and we're here and we are um, here celebrating the, uh, the, the anniversary of the launch of Sputnik and you're about to present an award. Can you talk a little bit about that please? Well, I'm about to present an award uh, called the Grote Reber Award, which is given to a distinguished radio astronomer. And the winner this year is one of my heroes, uh, Govin Swarup, who is an Indian who has, uh, in India, built two real state-of-the-art distinctive radio telescopes. Indeed, he's built one which is, in a sense, the largest telescope in the world. And he is an inspiring figure because it was wonderful for Bernard Lovell to do what he did here, but to build something in India given all the problems of working there, is an even greater achievement in a way. So it's a great privilege for me to be able to present this award to uh, uh, someone who is, along with Bernard Lovell, one of my other scientific heroes. Sir Martin Rees, thank you very, very much indeed for taking the time out and your busy schedule to talk to us. OK. Thank you very much. Good to be able to talk to you. OK, that was Nick talking to Sir Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal. Now, also at Jodra Bank Observatory that day were representatives from industry, people who were involved in spacecraft and well, space industries. And one of them was Gerrit Morgan from Open University. Now, I spoke to him a little bit about how he was using spacecraft technology, which he has developed, in fighting tuberculosis. Uh, we have um, just received a uh, large strategic translation award from the Wellcome Trust. Um, that allows us to translate our space technology to the uh, rapid diagnostics of TB, uh, in particular for the third world. So some of the engineering problems we have for developing technology to go out into, say, Africa, is the same as what we have for, um, you know, for the going to do planetary studies. Say, for instance, the Beagle 2 Mars mission and also the Rosetta Comet Chaser. So the similar technology that you designed to go and explore nearby space, certainly low, low Earth orbit and also um, Mars, other, other worlds, you're using to 
solve the tuberculosis problem in places like Africa. That's right, yeah. Um, TB is actually a very nasty disease. Um, TB and HIV together is the biggest killer in Africa. Um, about one in three people in the world actually have TB, or are believed to have latent TB. But because your immune system is quite strong, it means that uh, you don't actually notice you've got it. It's when your immune system becomes compromised, and the TB takes over. And uh, something like uh, eight or nine million new cases per year of TB. And approximately two million people a year die from TB. So what are the connections between space technology and the technology you use to fight tuberculosis in places like Africa? Uh, well, basically what we've developed for the, uh, for the space missions are miniaturized mass spectrometers. And mass spectrometers are kind of the gold standard analytical piece of kit used in most laboratories. Uh, the difficulty with these commercial systems are they, they're very much, uh, well, one, they're quite large, they're quite power hungry, uh, and they're relatively expensive. So um, they're not really designed to go out into the field. They're designed for, to be used in laboratories. What we've done, of course, for the space missions is strip out uh, a lot of the bells and the whistles and make a very, very simple device because, of course, the limitations on space missions are power, mass, budget, and volume, all the, all the kind of things that you have to worry about. So we've tried to miniaturize, miniaturize the systems and effectively make the systems as simple as possible. Presumably you also want to make them as robust as possible too so they can be used in the field. Absolutely, yes. And so, you know, the, the, if, you, if you can build something that can survive a rocket launch, then you should build something that can go in the back of a Land Rover or wherever else these people need to take the samples. So again, one of the things we're trying to do here is actually take the laboratory to the people as opposed to currently where, you know, the samples are sent away or the person has to go to the laboratory. So it just makes the, the technology much more widely available, hopefully. Uh, and the funding we have at present is actually to prove the actual, uh, um, or prove the technology, really, and to show that we can do as well as, or more realistically, hopefully better than the current technologies available at present. So we'll have very good sensitivity, and the main thing is, is the speed of analysis. So the quicker you can diagnose someone, the, the quicker you can start uh, treating them, and that, of course, means the, the less chance they have of spreading the actual disease to their friends and families. So a, we've come a long way from the uh, mass the spectrometers on uh, Viking, the Viking probes of Mars. And uh, what would these um, uh, pieces of equipment look like? I mean, how big are they? How easy are they transported? Okay, well, the, the Rosetta system is basically the same size as a shoebox. It literally is a, the size of a shoebox, and uh, in fact, you can see a picture of it here. But uh, it weighs about four kilograms, so the same, the same as four bags of sugar, and it uses about uh, 30 watts of power, so about half the light bulb. So again, everything is optimized to try and give you that kind of low mass and uh, low power system, but also making it still robust enough to survive the rigors of launch and everything else. Um, the system we're building for Africa, the drivers are different, the design drivers are different. We don't actually have uh, the need to make it so small, as long as it's portable. And the, the system actually we're building at present will fit inside something like a camera case, so the size of a briefcase, really. Um, so it can be transported by an individual. Uh, the power requirements, the design we're doing for Africa at present is actually uh, a mains-powered system, but it could quite easily run off 24 volts, so we could quite easily plug it into a battery or or a small generator, if necessary. So how soon will the technology be available for rollout, as it were, into Africa stage? Okay, well, the project actually uh, is a two-year funding for the project. Um, the first 12 months is actually building the boxes and actually getting uh, things like CE approval so it can be sent out to be used. Uh, in parallel, we're also doing the development of the chemistry to optimise that to make sure that's robust. Uh, but in 12 months' time, we'll have a box, or several boxes, that will go out to our clinical partner in Africa, 
to uh, Harare in Zimbabwe and she'll then spend 12 months doing a proper performance evaluation trial to actually compare the, the, uh, the level of performance with the current technologies that are currently available. So that will be a double-blind test. We'll support it, but uh, the test will be done by our clinical partners and they will obviously uh, decide if it actually is uh, any better than what we currently have. And the space probe that this technology is being developed for is the Rosetta program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, the Rosetta project is actually uh, one of Europe's really, last really big missions, Horizon uh, Cornerstone mission. It launched in 2004, on the 2nd of March. Uh, we're off to chase a comet. We're currently on the way back from Mars. Uh, and we, In fact, we actually switched our machine on uh, last weekend for the first time for a while. Uh, and everything's working fine, which is good news. But we hope to get to the comet in around about March 2014. Uh, in November 2014, we actually hope to land on the comet. Our instrument will then be one of a suite of instruments which will actually analyse what the comet's made from. Um, the scientific rationale is to actually analyse the water uh, and the isotopic composition of the water to try and work out if water on Earth has come from a cometary impact early on in the Earth's history. In addition to that, it's also looked to see if uh, the building blocks of life are present on a comet and whether or not they could have been brought to, to Earth again early on in the Earth's history. And the project um, for using the same technology in Africa to hunt and uh, uh, combat tuberculosis, what's the project called? Uh, well, the project actually has a really long title, but uh, the short title I use is Down to Earth, uh, really because it, it, you know, it's the translation of our spaceflight technology. Um, the project is actually funded by the Wellcome Trust, and we have several partners in the project. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine are the people who, who know about TB and how to handle TB. They're our clinical partners. Uh, but we also have uh, Cranfield University who are supplying us with some of the software for the pattern recognition work as well. Again, what we're trying to do with the system is make it as simple as possible for the operator to do. We're trying to take the skill of the operator out of the analysis process. So the instrument and the, the sample preparation is as simple as possible. The person will then press a button and the machine will decide whether or not there is a, a TB present or not. So again, we're trying to de-skill the operator and, uh, and make, it as, uh, make the throughput for samples as high as possible. Because this is a big thing with um, Space Project at the moment, they're becoming more and more autonomous, they're able to act by themselves. Presumably this has got a similar kind of uh, theme behind it. If you make the equipment as simple as possible, then the required control can be similarly simple. Absolutely. So yes, we've designed our own electronics, we've designed our own software to run the instrument. And as you say, you know... Uh, when we run the instrument on Rosetta at present, the, the actual script that's been running for the last weekend was actually sent up three or four months ago because, of course, it has to go from us to Germany, from Germany to Australia, and Australia then beam it up, and so, so these, the, to the, then to the spacecraft. So, uh, yes, yeah, space missions definitely are uh, designed to run autonomously, and, uh, and we're obviously translating that kind of knowledge background to, to this kind of system where the instrument itself will basically run itself. And what other projects are there that uh, have this crossover between well, the, the, the apparently disparate fields of uh, biology and uh, pathology and space? Um, well, there are several, actually. I'm actually working on, uh, with other people on uh, looking at things like uh, the use of breath for di medical diagnostics, so you can actually look at compounds in the breath to use that as specific markers of the disease. Uh, we're also doing work with uh, a group down in Amersham about, uh, in fact, a group from Manchester University, um, there's a consortium being put together to try and look at whether or not we can have a non-invasive test for bladder cancer just by basically sniffing the urine. Uh, and again, using the kind of uh, mass spectrometer technologies, we can actually find marker compounds and potentially translate them into things like uh, either portable mass specs or electronic noses. 
So again, it's all about uh, one, finding marker compounds, and then two, finding a technology which allows that, uh, those markers to be out uh, where it's needed most, with the patient, basically, giving the person the point-of-care analysis. Oh, it's a fantastic crossover of technology and knowledge, and we wish you all the best for the, both projects. Okay, thank you very much. So there we are, a novel use of spacecraft technology down here on the Earth. Now, a really interesting talk I went to at the conference was given by Clancy James of the University of Adelaide, and he was talking about detecting neutrinos. Now, he wasn't just building a, a huge detector in a mine like everyone else. He decided he would use the moon as a neutrino detector. So Nick caught up with him and asked him all about it. So with us right now is Clancy James, University of Adelaide. Now, going to talk to us a little bit about... Ultra-high-energy neutrino detection. What does that mean? Well, we've detected neutrinos from the sun and from supernova 1987A, but these are all relatively mundane sources, as I tend to think of them. But because of the known flux of cosmic rays, which we've been sort of seeing for a long time and no one still knows where they're coming from, we expect a flux of the highest-energy neutrinos, and these are energies of some extremely large factor of what we're already seeing. (laughs) What are cosmic rays, or is that a question which shouldn't be asked? Oh, no, they're pretty sure that they're... um, mostly protons right up to iron nuclei sort of coming from space somewhere. They think that the lower energy ones might be accelerated in the intergalactic medium and um, supernova remnants, but the highest energy ones have no clue what could be accelerating them. So this is a big question, isn't it? We've got cosmic rays, these, partic- these, these bunches of high-energy particles coming from well, cosmic distances, and we have no idea where they're coming from. What are you aiming to learn with your research? Well, one of the problems with cosmic rays is because they're charged particles, they get bent in galactic magnetic fields. So if you detect one coming from some direction over there, you can't point back a telescope there and see where it, came, where it was produced. However, with neutrinos, they travel in straight lines. So hopefully if you can detect one coming from some certain direction, you can just point a Keck telescope or some other. So you presume that the cosmic rays and the neutrinos come from the same source. Is that the idea? Well, there's two sources of neutrinos we expect. One are those a sort of guaranteed flux. In other words, known physics, we sort of know how cosmic rays interact with the cosmic microwave background. These interactions are expected to produce high, the highest energy neutrinos. Plus, um, that just comes from the propagation of cosmic rays, nothing to do with how they're produced. When people model how they're produced, um, a lot of these models come up with other the more exotic fluxes of highest energy neutrinos. So tell us how you're going to detect these neutrinos. Well, when these things interact, these ultra-high neutrinos, they produce a shower of millions of billions of secondary particles. These particles knock um, electrons from the surrounding medium into the shower, so you end up with more electrons and positrons in the shower. So there's a net excess negative charge. Now, you have up to billions of excess electrons travelling on some at velocities in a dense medium, higher than the propagation of light in that medium. And these things emit coherent Cherenkov radiation, which comes out as a very short duration but extremely powerful pulse, so it only lasts for a billionth of a second. The Cherenkov radiation is a blue light, isn't it? Yep. So if you've ever had the fortune or otherwise of looking into a nuclear reactor and see a nice blue glow coming from the water, it's the same mechanism. Stop. I thought that nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. Um, That's the speed of light in a vacuum, but anyone who's looked into a swimming pool and sees a refraction of water through there sees that light in certain media travels slower than the speed of light in a vacuum. However, particles, they don't care about the medium they're travelling through. If they're extremely energetic, so they just plough through whatever's there going at close to the speed of light anyway. And so when they do this, they emit this lovely blue light we call Cherenkov radiation. It turns out that um, this huge pulse that you get from these entire showers of particles, um, that peaks in the radio part of the spectrum. So that the larger the distribution of particles, the lower the frequency. And so blue lights are very high frequency radiation compared to radio. But the more particles you get, the lower the frequency of the peak. However, the more powerful the peak is. 
So we're talking about this, uh, seeing this Cherenkov radiation in the radio band, hence I guess that's why you're here at Dodgeball Bank today. That's the one. I'm normally a particle physicist, but I'm hanging out with the radio astronomers for the moment. So what do you think? Uh, the radio astronomers better looking, uh, more intelligent than the particle astrophysicists, or what? I can't give any comment, given current company, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very wise man. <laughs> you're from the University of Adelaide, so what is your job there? What do you do? So I'm a PhD student. I um, do computer simulations of this technique. So we're actually planning to point radio telescopes at the moon to detect the particles when they hit the moon. So you're going to use the moon as a great big neutrino detector? That's the one. And which telescopes are going to use to do this? Radio telescopes? Which ones where? Well, the first experiment to do this was with the Parkes um, Radio Telescope in New South Wales, Australia, and we've got some more observations um, at the Compact Array, which is six small dishes there. However, other groups are currently using um, the Westerbork Synthesis Telescope in the Netherlands, and we hope to be able to use a square kilometre array, this big, fancy new telescope being planned eventually. Best of luck to you, and thank you very much for talking to us about your research. Thank you. So fascinating stuff there. Who needs to go and build a massive neutrino detector when you've got the moon? I look forward to that actually being used in practice. Now, staying with the moon, we also caught up with Dr. Barry Kellett from Rutherford Appleton Laboratories, who was working on the successor to the instrument which flew on Smart One. That was the spacecraft that crashed into the moon last year, wasn't it? Yeah. So we talked to him a little bit about his current work and the next mission that's going to be flying. Thank you, Barry, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the uh, what you're working on now. Well, perhaps remind us, what was Smart One? Just in a few sentences, what was Smart One and what did it do? Okay, Smart One was ESA's first um, technology demonstration mission. It allowed scientists like myself to practice, to, to develop an instrument and test it. Uh, but now we want to do the real thing. We actually want to fly the instrument for real and do real science with it. So that's what we're going to be doing very soon. So what, is the, what was the demonstrator technology that you were demonstrating with Smart One? Okay, so I should say, Smart One actually went to the moon. It was the technology to demonstrate uh, ion propulsion, but we flew a very small X-ray instrument to, to try and work out what the moon was made of. Unfortunately, when, when Smart One went, the, the sun, which is our main source of X-rays, was, was switched off, essentially. And so now we're going to fly on an Indian mission, the follow-up instrument to, to our original Smart One instrument. It's called Kix, spelt C1XS, which stands for the Chandrayaan-1 X-ray spectrometer, and it will figure out what the moon's made of, or at least the top 100 microns of the moon. This is what we can sense with, with our X-ray instrument. So Smart One demonstrated the iron propulsion technology. You built the instruments that were on Smart One, and you're currently building the instruments for kicks. What are you going to learn? The plan is to do global maps of the moon in pure elements, i.e. the distribution of, of rock-forming elements on the surface of the moon. So we will do global maps of magnesium, aluminium, silicon, and then it's the, the, the maybe list, which is things like calcium, titanium, and iron, which we probably won't get global maps, but we'll get a good idea where they come from on the moon as well. And what will knowing the relative abundances of these elements tell us about the moon? The fundamental thing that we're trying to measure is something called the magnesium number. It goes back to when the moon was formed. When the moon was formed, it formed from a collision between the Earth and something, probably a Mars-sized object that hit the Earth when it was very, very young. The moon formed out of the, the debris that was formed from that. The next bit after that is the sort of the, the dot, dot, dot that we're trying to fill in. The one idea is that the entire moon melted 
and therefore you take two elements like magnesium and iron. Magnesium is light, iron is heavy. So the ratio of these two elements tells you whether or not the moon was really a magma ocean, as it's called, this, this molten rock. And so the ratio of magnesium to iron for the whole of the moon is a, is a measure of what happened to the moon after it was formed, which is what we're trying to find out. So we're going to learn about how the moon formed. Now, we remember that SMART-1 had a very spectacular end. It was, uh, uh, on purpose, crashed into the moon. Uh, any future, uh, any similar future for kicks? I, I guess the Chandrayaan mission will end, and whether it ends in the same spectacular way, I, I don't know yet. It's the Indians uh, who will be doing the steering for us for that. But hopefully, yes, we'll get a lot of science before that point. <laughs> <laughs> so you're here today at the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the launch of Sputnik. Uh, what does uh, Jodrell Bank Observatory and uh, the Level Telescope mean to you? Um, it's it's one of my other hats that I have to wear. It's I... Um, I studied stars before I studied uh, the moon. Uh, I did x-rays from stars. Strangely enough, x-rays from stars and the radio emission from stars actually correlate. So if you want to find out the best radio stars, you ask an x-ray astronomer first because he knows in, in advance what's, what you're going to see. And so I've, I've used, been lucky enough to, be, to use the, the moon telescope twice now to observe different stars and we're, we're really fascinated and impressed with the results that we've got from, from Merlin and Jodrell Bank. What can we learn about the radio emission from stars? It tells you about the magnetic environment around the star, which the X-rays do as well. But it tells you uh, details of, of the, the physics that's going on around the stars. And, and uh, you know, we've discovered a new way of making radio by, by studying the X-rays, strangely enough. <laughs> um, and so what we, what we think is going on is that the, the stars have a very strong magnetic field, like, a bit like Jupiter, in fact. And Jupiter is a radio source. Many stars are radio sources in exactly the same way that Jupiter is, and that's what we're trying to study, trying to understand. So the uh, magnetic field around stars is a, a huge study in itself. What will we learn about the magnetic fields around these other stars, and how does that sort of impact our understanding of how stars are made and formed? Basically, the, the stars are very strong fields, are, are tend, tend to be young stars. So we're studying the, the early stages of, of star formation and, and the early stages of, of a star being uh, on the main sequence, as it's called, uh, Stars that are, are young are rotating rapidly. They have a very fast uh, dynamo, which makes the magnetic field. But we can't see magnetic fields normally. You need something, you know, astronomers need photons and uh, X-ray photons or radio photons. They help us understand and see this invisible magnetic field that's around the star. So a man with many hats, we thank you very much for talking to us today about kicks and also your research about magnetic stars. Hope you enjoy the day. A pleasure. Thanks very much. So very exciting science coming up about magnetic stars and radio observations of stars. And on the Friday and Saturday following the 4th of October, Jodrell Bank hosted a very special event. It was fantastic and it was great fun to be there. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity probably. I don't know if it'll happen again. We basically turned the Lovell Telescope into a huge projection screen. Mm. Um, now some people before the event were complaining and saying, oh, we're we just going to show Deep Impact or Armageddon or some <laughs> silly Hollywood movie. But we actually projected images from the past 50 years of space flight and the space age, as well as loads of astronomy images and animations. It was great. You could, we were zooming through planetary nebula and it threw into the solar system at one point. And this, this, this wasn't just on one small part of the Lovell Telescope. But this was the no. entire Lovell Telescope was lit up. More it? or less. It was a, a rectangular screen, so mm. it was about 150 feet high. That's quite, that's quite a large screen in anybody's view. It is. It was quite possibly the world's largest cinema screen at the, that point because it is larger than an IMAX Sounds like it was fantastic. It was. It was absolutely stunning. But don't just take my word for it being a fantastic event. I went around with the Jodcast microphone and got the feedback of some of the audience who were there. 
How, how are you finding the show so far? The music's great. What do you think of the light show? The temperature's cold, the lights are brilliant. <laughs> the lasers, yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, great. What was your favourite part? Actually, when the radio telescope was revolving right at the beginning, that was so wonderful. So when it was tipping around to point towards when us? When it was tipping around. When they were bringing it round, there was yeah, yeah. there were the background kind of heartbeat sound. Yeah. Which was, I, I thought that was a really inspiring moment. I was impressed myself. And yeah. I, it was really, 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 really inspiring, yeah. And then the first shots of the, kind of 90, of the initial 1950s when they were actually building yeah. the uh, radio telescope. And the Vangelis music right at the beginning. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. How are you finding it so far? I think it's very enjoyable. Very excellent, isn't it? Yes, excellent I'm show. enjoying it thoroughly. It's quite an experience. Especially the facts are stunning. There's no doubt about it. It's stunning. What's your favourite bit been so far? Um... Space, the, 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 the outer space, showing right. all the nebula and the, 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 so where the explosions. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in the opening sequences were very yes. good. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think the Chadwell Bank, the Devalence Chadwell Bank has got as well. Then the whole thing is, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's fascinating. Good. It's just a bit, it's a bit, <laughs> it's a little I bit cold. It's a bit, bit missing it. Yeah. Right. Very, very, and, and we're glad we've come to the first first stage of it in the world. Yep. It's never been done before, has it? Not like this. No. It's very spectacular <laughs> how. How the how the how the dome comes in front of us. You know, it's the first time I've actually seen it go yeah. turn over to this. And the 3D effect. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's very very I mean, clever, clever, clever workmanship. And whoever's responsible for it, excellent. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you very much for talking. To thank me. you very much. Have you come from very far? Um, from near Blackpool. And what are you thinking of the show so far? Uh, it's excellent. Really, really good. What's it, what's your favourite bit been? Uh, I like the uh, I like the space travel images, the uh, the, the rocket uh, launches and the, uh, the orbital footage. Right. What did you like? Well, um, you know when they were doing that bit where they had the star map and they were pinpointing exact stars. Yeah. When they did the black hole. Oh yeah, that was good. I enjoyed that bit as well. <laughs> I liked the bit right at the start where the screen's quite black and you've just got all the stars because it sort of it merges in with, with the sky and it's, um, it's like you're really there. And we've got a nice clear night tonight as well. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic, yeah. So whereabouts have you come from? Macclesfield. What do you think of it so far? Well, I think it's fabulous because I remember this as a young girl, remember. My dad used to bring us here when we were young. So this, for me, as I was saying on the way here, I can only see this once. When this is a hundred years old, my little grandson may be able to come and celebrate again, but for me this is a once in a lifetime. And yeah, I remember it because it takes me back yep. to coming here with my brothers, my sister and my father. Yeah, so for me it's great. So what do you think of tonight? Oh, it was absolutely stunning. Beautiful. Beautiful. What's your favourite bit been? Uh, I think the first bit where like they saw the earth, you know, like they, had the, they panned out and they had that little bit rolling. I think, yeah, that bit. Wonderful. Thank you. And have you enjoyed tonight as well? I have, I think it's thoroughly enjoyable. Looking forward to the grand finale. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, it's great, especially I like the laser bits doing the trees. Yeah, we've got loads of lasers shining on the trees, haven't we? Yeah, it's good. It's great. So what's your favourite part? <laughs> uh, I love the music and I'm waiting for all the, um, the, like the nebulas and all the whizzy star bits to come on. <laughs> that was really impressive, wasn't it, when yes. we were whizzing through the galaxy that and went through the solar system. Yeah, it kind of made, made me feel a bit giddy, a bit seasick. <laughs> Is it like that, being an astronaut? <laughs>
So there you are. Everyone really enjoyed the whole event. A fantastic celebration of 50 years of space. There are a lot of people who attended the event who put pictures on Flickr, so we'll put links to those people's galleries on Flickr so everyone can go and have a look at at what they missed. (laughs) Sounds fantastic. And if we ever do anything like that again in the future, we'll be sure to let you know on the Jodcast. You'll hear it first on the Jodcast. Now, anyway, moving on, we have our main interview with Donna Kubik of Fermilab in the United States. And, Nick, you went to talk to her about the Dark Energy Survey. Yes, indeed. It was very interesting to listen to her about how she and her collaborators are working towards finding out what dark energy is. Thank you very much for joining us. And tell us a little bit about the work that you do. You work as part of the Dark Energy Survey. What does that mean? That's right. This is a project that's an international collaboration, and we're aiming to refit a telescope in the southern hemisphere with equipment that can survey the entire sky in the southern hemisphere, and to try and find out what dark energy is. Okay, that's a good start. Let's talk about what this amazing thing called dark energy is. What do we think dark energy is? Um, We don't know what dark energy is, but what we're trying to explain that we call dark energy is the observation in 1998 that the rate of acceleration or expansion of the universe is accelerating. Mm It had been thought that perhaps after the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe would eventually slow down and gravity would overtake the initial push, the initial acceleration, and either reach a steady state or then collapse again. Mm -hmm. However, from observation of supernova, very distant standard candles, astronomers call them, it was observed by two independent groups that the rate of expansion is actually accelerating. Okay, so the universe isn't just expanding, it's expanding faster and faster and faster. Yes, and this was very surprising. This Mm. is not what astronomers expected to find. And since that observation, first it was very compelling because two independent groups discovered it. However, they were using the same same tool. They were studying supernova, Mm. which they could measure characteristics of these supernova to know their distance and their velocity by looking at the redshift and the brightness. The problem with having two groups using the same tool, essentially, is they could be using the tool incorrectly, basically. Is that the idea? That's right. They could have the same systematic errors. But since then, there are other tools that have come to the same conclusion, like studying the microwave background points to to the same kind of conclusion. So it's pretty compelling that there's something that we don't understand that is causing the universe to to kind of push apart, sort of um, push in the direction opposite of gravity. So this is the mysterious dark energy. Yes, Mm. yes, And and it truly is mysterious. So ways that we can try and get more evidence for what it could be would be to to get more data, to make more observations of the structure of matter and how it's distributed in three dimensions in the universe. So we go back one step. We know that gravity operates on the universe as a whole, so the the universe contains matter, and even though the universe is expanding outwards, presumably from the effects of the Big Bang still, gravity will want to try and pull everything back together again or to try and squeeze the universe back down towards itself again. However, we don't see that. We see the universe expanding, but we also see it being expanding faster and faster and faster, so there must be some force operating against gravity to keep on pushing the universe outwards. Yes, but there is not a, a force that we know of that's in the textbooks today that can be attributed to that. Right. And that's that's the mystery, and that's the goal. That's what 
many, many astronomers hope to figure out by, by making more observations. What's the difference between dark energy and dark matter? Um, they're totally different and totally unrelated. Dark matter does respond to gravity, and dark matter causes things to contract and clump and would help form galaxies and, and attract galaxies to other galaxies and, and form structure in the universe, whereby dark energy has the opposite effect. It pushes things apart. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're quite different, although their names sound very similar, and, and they're often confused if you don't look at the, the word that, that dark is modifying. Dark, in, in both cases, basically means we know it exists in some form, but we can't figure out what on earth it is. Right. In both cases, we don't know what the cause is or the origin is of them, but they are unrelated. In the case of dark energy, do we have any idea what could be providing this, uh, essentially, energy force blowing the universe apart faster and faster? Uh, like some theoreticians do, and there's the idea of a cosmological constant, which always brings up the story of Einstein, and first he, he had to impose a cosmological constant to keep the universe static because his calculations had implied had initially implied that the universe was not static, which wasn't he wasn't comfortable mm-hmm. with that. And this is his theory of general relativity, basically, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. And this, this, this amazing cosmological constant is a part of his theory. It wasn't something which he added in or just it was just a fun thing to have. It was part of his theory, his mathematics. Yes, it could, yeah, and it could be given a value. Mm-hmm. And what that value would be now is different than what he was than the value he would have achieved. He didn't like it originally, did he? At all, not at all. But now he would probably be very happy yes. that it was part of his theory. But it's it's not we're not certain that that's that that is related to dark energy, but it certainly could be and that would be one of the ideas that the dark energy survey would want to try to test. So we want to get more information about the distribution of matter in the universe. I think it's important to point out that um, Einstein's general theory of relativity is currently our best understanding of how the universe evolves as a whole. And this mysterious dark energy can be explained as part of Einstein's general theory. So it's, uh, it's nice to know he could have predicted it back in the day. He just didn't like it very much. Yes, yes. But he didn't know. He didn't have this... The advantage we have today of all of these observations, and especially those of the supernova in 1998, that implied or that tell us that the universe is expanding faster and faster. Tell us a little bit about the Dark Energy Survey itself. The Dark Energy Survey will measure. Well, is actually comprised of four four sets of observations that can go on almost all simultaneously. <laughs> Three of them can go on simultaneously, and that's to measure the structure in the universe using something called weak lensing, which is the effect of mass bending the path of light. The amount that light is bent is a function of how massive something is. So if we look at how distant galaxies are distorted by the matter in between us and these distant galaxies, we can learn about how much matter is between us and it, and then learn about the distribution of space and matter and time. So this weak lensing is the first of the four methods. The second is to look at the distribution of galaxy clusters, and this is an optical survey, so I 
didn't say that at the beginning of the dark energy survey. We'll use a, an optical telescope, a four-meter telescope in the southern hemisphere. It will have a wide field of view, be able to look at three square degrees of the sky at one time, So, which is important when you want to survey a large area of the sky because you have to see a lot of it at once. And it will have a camera on it that's made out of digital cameras, very much like the digital camera that you take pictures of things on your vacation, only these are extra sensitive to really long wavelengths because we want to look at things that have been highly redshifted, which means that normal wavelengths have been shifted, stretched out more and more and more, and we want to be able to use this telescope to see the most distant things we can see with these optical devices. Right. So we're um, sort of refitting this telescope, which has a narrow field of view now, and, and that not such, uh, not those kind of CCDs that has CCDs they can't right now. They can't see so far into the infrared. The Dark Energy Survey is rebuilding the optics and is building a new camera that can do this job and look further into the past, look at more highly redshifted things. So we have two out of the four things that the the new operation is going to be looking at. That's the weak lensing survey, basically looking at the shapes of uh, galaxy images and galaxy clustering. We have their redshifts and their position. We know how the galaxies are positioned in space. You mentioned there are four things that the survey is going to be doing. What are the other two things? Uh, the other two are baryon acoustic oscillations and supernova. And the supernova search is similar to the one that started all this. In 1998, we'll be looking again at supernova, only now even more distant supernova. Presumably you're going to get with the supernova search that you do Similar results to what the uh, original two teams got? Different results? It would be interesting either way. I sh- probably shouldn't predict. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be exciting finding out, right? Yes, I think so. <laughs> and the third thing, baryonic acoustic oscillations. This is CMB stuff, right? I mean, the- Yeah, so this is in the early universe. Mm-hmm. So when things were high pressure and then, then as things were expanding, the pressure was got less. So you get these kind of sound waves oscillating. Mm-hmm. And... These oscillations are imprinted on the density of matter and therefore the distribution of matter. So the distribution of things that formed from the original densities in the early universe, galaxies and then clusters of galaxies, would have characteristic separations that you can observe if you have enough statistics and you look at the separations of galaxies or look at, they call them correlation functions, of Clusters. Mm-hmm. So you're going back, looking at the effects of what happened very early on in the universe. Basically, the universe started, it went bang, <clears throat> and then bits of it started to oscillate, ring like a bell, basically, sort of wobble backwards and forwards. These are these um, oscillations that you mentioned. Yes, and we can see the effects of these oscillations throughout universes. We're looking from now back in time. The way matter is, is distributed now is related to what happened back then. So this four-meter telescope in the southern hemisphere is going to stare at the universe that it can see and basically collect images of galaxies. Yes. And then you're going to look very, very carefully at the galaxies and what exactly are you going to measure? So we'll measure the location of the galaxies and the brightness of the galaxies and we'll observe every single galaxy through four different filters, actually five different filters now. And the reason we wanted to do that is by comparing the amount of light through the different filters, we can learn about the redshift of the object. 
Often astronomers measure the redshift by looking at the spectrum. So you need to do two things. You need to you would need to take time to take an image of the sky and look at all of the galaxies, and then you need to one at a time get their spectrum. Mm-hmm. But there's another way by looking at every object through all these these five filters that we can figure out the redshift by comparing the amount of light, the relative amount of light through each filter. And this is very important because you can get much, much more data in a shorter amount of time than you could if you had to actually get the spectrum of each de- each object. So this gives you the real position of all these galaxies, how far away they are and in what direction. Right. So by the image, you get um, two dimensions. And then by comparing the colors through these filters, you can get the third dimension. So you have a three-dimensional view of the universe. And that tells you how the galaxies presumably are positioned in space and you expect to see them clumped together, presumably. Yes, and how, how much they're clumped together depends on how much gravity has affected them and how much dark energy has opposed gravity. So it's a way of trying to figure out how the two forces, dark energy and gravity, have balanced each other or not balanced each other throughout time and how whether that's been a constant or I would say it certainly hasn't been constant, but how those relative forces have changed. How important is dark energy in our understanding of the universe? It's about 70% of, of everything that we know, know of the energy budget in the universe. The rest of it is dark matter, and very, very small fraction of it, let's say less than 1%, is what, what we're, you and I are made out of. So if we want to, to have any understanding of what the majority of the universe is made out of, we need to, to try and figure out what dark energy is and dark matter, which is also a large fraction. But dark energy is, is even a larger fraction of, of what the universe is made out of. So we take the entire you know, collection of stuff in the universe, and we ask, including energy. 70% of it is this mysterious dark energy. Some other fraction, I think it's about 20%, is dark matter, and the rest is sort of baryonic. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so it's, it's quite humbling. It's, that it's quite upsetting, really, isn't it, when we realize that most of we, we have absolutely no idea what most of the universe is made of. Yes, and we've just changed our minds. I mean, we've just had to start living with this for in the past less than 10 years, which is, I think, quite exciting to be able to be part of this right now. Well, it's fantastic to be able to ask these questions now. Yeah, I mean, I feel very lucky. <laughs> so how soon before the uh, new telescope will be operational? Probably not until 2011. That's when we plan on being fully commissioned and taking data. Mm -hmm. And what's your specific job in the Dark Energy Survey? My job is helping to build the camera that's made out of these sort of souped-up CCDs that can can see these really long long wavelengths. Mm -hmm. We have to make this huge array of them and fill it up with about 70 of these CCDs. So we have to get 70 of these... 2,000 by 4,000 pixels that that are... CCD chips. Yes, and all the CCD chips to be working very well, you know, and it's a lot of pixels that have to be good and give you good images. And so you have to sort through all those you get from the manufacturer and find those that are good enough to do the job. Mm -hmm. So you learn from the astronomers what's required, you know, how good do these devices have to operate. So some of the CCD chips that you receive from the manufacturer are going to be substandard. They're going to have presumably dead pixels or lines or something like that. You have to choose which ones are the the right ones, the best ones. And when do you expect the whole system to be operational? In 2011. 2011. 
totally, all the bugs will be out of it. And we'll be taking data, and the telescope will also be open to be used for two other astronomers, you know, in addition to those working on the dark energy survey. So some of the time will be devoted to other kinds of astronomy. Presumably wide-field astronomy, where people will need to see... Still wide-field, yeah. Where do you work? So I work at Fermilab, which is the home of a large particle accelerator, an electron... uh, It's a proton-antiproton collider, And so historically, it was a high-energy physics lab, and it still is, although many high-energy physicists are now in the astrophysics group, Mm -hmm. and many are now working full-time on the Dark Energy Survey. It's a remarkably famous institution. It's it's known right across the world. Yes, many thought the top quark was discovered there, and a lot of neutrino research. There is a lot of neutrino research going on, so it's been a premier particle physics laboratory for decades, Mm -hmm. and... Hopefully, will continue to be, but astrophysics is also a growing department within Fermilab. Well, thank you very, very much indeed for talking to us today. Thank you. Okay, a very fascinating future experiment, and let's hope that they do finally work out what dark energy is. Yeah, the more we look at the universe, the more questions pop up. And indeed, talking about questions, here is Ask an Astronomer, now with myself and Edward Boyce. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Nick. It's good for my, my first experience of recording on the Jodcast. Oh, well, we're happy, very happy to have you here. Now, you might remember uh, from uh, a few episodes ago, we were talking with Chris Lintock from the University of Oxford about Galaxy Zoo. This is a project whereby you, anybody with an internet connection, can connect to galaxyzoo.org and look at observations of galaxies and then sort them into various different types of galaxies. It's something which is extremely difficult to get a computer to do, but that soft, squishy computer between our ears is actually quite good at it. Sort of, you know, several hundred thousand years of evolution has generated a computer for pattern recognition, and it seems to be the fastest way to get all these observations of galaxies sorted is to get humans to do it. But anyway, a question coming from Larry Hunt And his question goes like this. While profiling galaxies on galaxyzoo.org, I noticed that many galaxies have a redshift value. How do you convert a redshift value to a distance? Also, is the conversion linear? In other words, is a galaxy with a redshift value of 4 twice as far away as a galaxy with a redshift value of 2? Okay, so there's a couple of questions there. Let's first of all talk about redshift. What does redshift mean? Well, redshifts happen because the universe is expanding. So when light from the distant universe sets out and starts travelling towards us, the space is expanding while the light moves through it. And as space stretches out, the light gets stretched out as well. And so its wavelength gets longer. And when the wavelength of light gets longer, it looks more red. And the further, uh, the further away the light was when it started, the more redshift stretching there is and the redder the light gets. So that's sort of just reminding everyone what redshifts are. And... For small redshifts, we're dealing with light that only went through it, started out in a nearby bit of the universe, where the expansion rate hasn't had time to change very much by the time the light gets to us. So there you can assume a constant expansion rate, and then you do actually get a nice linear conversion from redshift to distance. So I had to go and look up the numbers, but for small redshifts, you multiply the redshift by 130 trillion trillion to get the distance in metres, or you can multiply by 14 billion to get the distance in light years. Now, that's only good up to a redshift of 0.1, maybe 0.2 if you want to push it. And for larger redshifts, the light set out when the universe was much younger and when it was expanding at a different rate. And because the expansion rate has changed, uh, you can't just take a simple linear conversion. You have to get it do some calculus and actually do an integral over all those different expansion rates. 
And so it's a little bit more complex. And so you have to write yourself some code to do an integral or look up some of the calculators on the web. But for those small values of redshift, then this linear multiplication is valid. Yes, but that uh, that's only good up to a redshift of about 0.1 or maybe 0.2 if you want to push it. It's for the larger redshifts, the universe was expanding at a different rate when the light set out. And so the expansion rate actually changes while the light's travelling to us. And to work, convert from redshift to distance, you need to do some calculus and actually integrate over all of those different expansion rates. So, you know, it's a redshift of, you know, about one-tenth, 0.1. That's the, that's the point at which it stops being linear. Now, I'm not particularly great at calculus. I, I hope that somebody out there has written some code that I can access online. Are there online calculators for distance given a redshift? Yes, there are some. So I'm sure we'll place a link to one of them on the show notes. Super. There you go. So thank you very much to Larry Hunt. Can I just throw in one little story? Um, another astronomer one time asked me what the redshift separation of the two of us was when we were sitting a few metres apart, and he wanted to see if I knew that number off the top of my head, which I didn't. So I actually said, well, I don't, can't give you an exact number, but if you're going to ask that sort of question in the bar on a Friday night, our redshift separation isn't nearly big enough. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, thank you very much to Larry Hunt. I hope that answers your question. Next question is from Joe Jones, and he writes, I was up before dawn yesterday. Well done. To see the 0608 transit of the International Space Station across a clear sky. I was struck by the appearance of a second light, a little in advance of the brighter ISS by a few degrees. It was as though this unknown light and that of the ISS were on two ends of a stick with the ISS at the rear. I've never seen this before. Any ideas? Right. Well, that second light was probably a Russian cargo transport vehicle. I looked around on the web and I found some logs for the International Space Station, uh, which told me that on the 19th of September, the Progress M60 cargo vehicle undocked from the International Space Station. And that happened at 0437 Moscow time. So by the time Joe Jones was making his observation a little bit later, but still quite early on the 19th of September, it would have moved away a little bit. And so it, um, I suppose uh, you know, a few hours later you would have expected that cargo vessel to have separated from the International Space Station but still be fairly close by and flying along the same orbit. Mm. So that's why you could have observed the two of them moving together across the sky, sort of in about the same region and moving at the same speed in the same direction. What was going to happen to that cargo uh, vessel? Oh, about a week later, it actually crashed down into the atmosphere and burned up. So it had taken supplies up to the International Space Station, and after those had all been used up, uh, Moscow Mission Control took over and piloted it away from the space station and let it just come back down to Earth and burn up in some remote part of the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much to Joe Jones for a great observation there. And please do, again, everybody send in your questions to Ask an Astronomer. Just go to www.jodcast.net and follow the links for feedback and send in your questions and we'll have them answered by our tame astronomers. So thank you very much to you, Edward, for answering the questions. It was good to be on here, Nick. Thank you very much. <laughs> and thanks for that, Nick and Edward. And Ask an Astronomer will be back for the November Extra issue of the Jodcast. Okay, so that's it. It's been a bumper issue of a Jodcast Extra. Yes, indeed. Sorry about that. If, uh, <laughs> if you're expecting a, a short and sweet edition, I'm afraid we disappointed you yet again. So, next time we've got exciting things lined up for you. We have an interview about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence with Jill Tarter, who's the director of the Centre for SETI Research. Yes, if you're interested at all about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, aliens in general, then do download the next edition of the Jodcast. So, as we've reached the end of the October Extra issue of the Jodcast, it just leaves me to thank Edward Boyce for doing the Ask an Astronomer, 
and all our interviewees. And, of course, all of you listeners for downloading us. Yes, indeed. And do remember, please, fill out the survey form at www.judcast.net and go into the draw to win 10 by 50 pair of binoculars. And on that note, goodbye. Goodbye. Okay, so the answer. Three bulbs, three switches. What you do is you switch on number one, leave it for a minute or so, and switch that off, and switch on number two. You then go into the back room, and whichever one is on is number two. Whichever one is off but hot is number one, and the one which is off and cold is number three. See you next month.